0: This morning we return to our study of Genesis, and we will be looking at Genesis chapter 26 at verse 34, all the way through chapter 27 at verse 40. These are the words of God. When Esau was 40 years old, he took his wives Judith, the daughter of Biri the Hittite, and Basemith, the daughter of Elon the Hittite. And they were a grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah. Now it came to pass, when Isaac was old and his eyes were so dim that he could not see, that he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered him, Here I am. Then he said, Behold now, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now therefore please take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and make me savory food such as I love, and bring it to me that I may eat that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to Esau, his son, and Esau went to the field to hunt game and to bring it. So Rebekah spoke to Jacob, her son, saying, Indeed, I heard your father speak to Esau, your brother, saying, Bring me game and make me savory food for me that I may eat and bless you in the presence of the Lord before my death. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice according to what I command you. Go now to the flock and bring me from there two choice kids of the goats, and I will make you savory food from them for your father such as he loves. Then you shall take it to your father that he may eat it and that he may bless you before his death. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open up these very famous words to us. Give us understanding. Let us receive the lessons that you are teaching us. Make us strong and fit, Lord, to serve you in all faith and love and loyalty in this day in which you've called us to live, for we pray in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> in C.S. Lewis's book, The Horse and His Boy, the main character, whose name's Shasta, finds himself isolated on a path winding up into the mountain's On a horse, he has no real idea how to ride or control. As the horse plods along, fog sets in and becomes so dense that Shasta can no longer see where he is or where he is going. And then the day turns to night, pitching Shasta into total blindness. It's a terrifying situation, but then something even more terrifying occurs. Shasta hears breathing of something that is obviously huge, and it's right next to him. Shasta's impulse is to flee in horror, but he doesn't know how to make the horse run. Going along in terror-filled silence and not knowing what else to do, Shasta ultimately speaks to the thing, and surprisingly, the thing speaks back. It will turn out to be a giant lion much larger than Shasta's horse. And the lion will turn out to be Aslan, who is the Christ figure in the book. Hours later, when the fog has dissipated and Shasta is finally able to see his surroundings clearly, Aslan has gone away. But Shasta can look back now and see that during his total blindness, he had been traversing a treacherous mountain pass. And it was only Aslan's presence beside him. That kept him from falling to his death. That, in a nutshell, is the story we read in our text in Genesis, even though we usually miss it due to all the thickenings of the plot. Rebecca overhearing Isaac and plotting to fool Isaac into blessing Jacob instead. Jacob acting in accordance to his mother's plot, wearing his brother's clothes with goat's fur on his arms and his neck to mimic Esau's hairiness and bringing the food his mother had cooked to mimic Esau's food, all resulting in Isaac giving to Jacob the blessing he intended to give to Esau, which was everything as Isaac had to give full inheritance of the covenant and all its blessings that God had made with Abraham, as well as covenant headship over all those who were members of it. And as soon as Jacob leaves, Esau immediately coming into Isaac's tent with food, and then Jacob trembling greatly as the truth comes out, and he realizes what has happened. And yet, amazingly, he remains unwavering in his blessing now of Jacob. High drama, furious pace, twists and turns, plots and counterplots, so many moving parts, and an absolutely gripping, true story. And yet it is easy for us to miss the central thread as well as the central lesson because we lose sight of the big E on the eye chart. This story is the story of Shasta. Blind and on the mountain pass. He is in grave peril, but he cannot see it. If Aslan does not stand between him and the cliff, he is going over. Shasta here is Isaac. This is his story. It is about him. Yes, there are other people involved. Yes, other people's actions will come under scrutiny. But the one who is walking blind on the mountain pass is Isaac. And if he goes over, he pretty much takes everybody with him. And that is still just as much true, even if everyone else in the story behaved like perfect angels. But if Isaac were to behave like a perfect angel, the peril disappears. And so does all of the questionable conduct of Rebecca and Jacob. As Isaac goes, everyone goes. Isaac is Shasta. Now Isaac is at least 100 years old at the time of these events. We know that because the Bible has already told us he was 40 years old when he married Rebekah. He was 60 years old when Jacob and Esau were born. And Esau is 40 years old when he marries the two Hittite women. Isaac's eyes have become dim to the point where he is functionally blind. But the bigger problem is the other blindness that has come upon Isaac Which is spiritual blindness. The result is that spiritually and physically, Isaac can no longer see what is right in front of him. He is in great peril and he doesn't even know it. In his blindness, he has decided on a course of action that sets him in direct defiance of God's word, will, and purposes. And it will bring Isaac under God's judgment and wrath, which will cause suffering to everyone connected to him. In spite of God's decree, which he proclaimed before the birth of Jacob and Esau, that the older would serve the younger, Genesis twenty five, twenty-three, so that Jacob, not Esau, would be the heir and covenant head, notwithstanding, Isaac is determined to make Esau the heir and covenant head. In verse 29, when Isaac thinks he is blessing Esau, he says, Let peoples serve you, and nations bow down to you. Be master over your brethren, and let your mother's sons bow down to you. And then he repeats the words of God's promise to Abraham, Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be all who bless you Isaac in effect by his determined action is saying to God not your will but my will be done which is the very opposite of what we see Jesus saying in the new testament he says in the garden of gethsemane not my will but your will be done luke 22:42 Isaac here is doing the same thing his older brother Ishmael did when he scoffed at the idea that Isaac, the younger, would be heir and covenant head over him, the older. And for that very reason, God told Abraham to drive Ishmael away. By his actions, you see, Ishmael was effectively denying the gospel. He was declaring... By his actions that God's promises, God's covenant, God's salvation are about normal human conception, normal human inheritance, and normal human bloodlines. When God had made it crystal clear that his promises and covenant and salvation pertain to one who was to come, a promised son who would be miraculously conceived by the power of of the Holy Spirit, and who would not by normal means of inheritance, but through his own sacrificial death and resurrection, would become the one heir in all of human history of God's promises, but who would allow all those united to him by faith to share in his inheritance. Now, how had God made this clear? Well, in a lot of ways, but one of the biggest ways was through Isaac's own birth and his life as a young man. Like Christ, Isaac was a son of promise, because God promised his birth by name and decreed that he, not Ishmael, would be the heir. Like Christ... Isaac was miraculously conceived by the power of God because his mother Sarah was barren all her life and now was too old besides. But God miraculously calls to her to conceive Isaac. Like Christ, Isaac was offered by his father on the altar as a picture of Christ's death and then received back at the last second as a picture of Christ's resurrection. Hebrews 11 tells us that expressly. Now Isaac knows all of this. He has lived this from before his conception, in his birth, and in his life as a lad. He was a living picture of Christ, the promised seed of Abraham. And Isaac has seen now with his own eyes God repeating the same gospel lessons in the next generation. Isaac's wife, Rebekah, like his mother, Sarah, is barren. For 20 years, Isaac and Rebecca pray for children. And when Rebekah finally conceives, it is by miracle of God, just like with Isaac's mother, Sarah. Isaac like his father Abraham, has two sons. And as God did with Isaac and Ishmael, so he does with Isaac's sons Jacob and Isha, uh, Jacob and Esau. God reverses the normal rules of human inheritance and decrees that the younger will be the heir and covenant head. And this is a pattern we see God do over and over in Scripture. We will see God do it again with Jacob's sons. For Joseph will inherit over all his older brothers. We will see God do it again with Jesse's sons. Because David, the youngest, will receive the throne over all his older brothers. God is teaching the same gospel lessons. God is saying through all these events, My salvation, My promises my covenant, are not about normal human conception, inheritance, or bloodlines, but about the miraculously conceived Son of promise who through His death and resurrection will be the only one in all of human history qualified to inherit God's promises. Everybody else who would inherit must do so by being united to Christ by faith. The other thing we see God doing over and over again is putting people on the horns of a dilemma. God did it with Abraham. He did it with Sarah. He did it with Ishmael. And now we see God doing it with Isaac. He's putting a fork in the road right in front of him. And here's the fork. Here's the dilemma. Will they place their hope in normal human conception, inheritance, bloodlines, and what they think those will bring them? Or will they give all of that up and place their hope wholly in Christ and what they gain through Him? That is where Isaac finds himself in our text, but he can't see it. He is on a treacherous mountain pass with a sheer cliff falling away at his feet, but he doesn't know it. He needs immediate help that only God can provide. He needs Aslan to stand between him and the cliff. He needs God to bring him to his senses. He needs God to shepherd him away from the deadly path he is on and put him safely back on the path of faith and obedience. And that is exactly what God does in our text. But again, we often miss it not only because of all the moving parts we've already referenced, but also because of a powerful, erroneous stereotype that has come to shape our view of Jacob and Esau. That stereotype is spawned by an unfortunate translation in Genesis 25, verse 27. Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents. Which leads us to think of Esau as a man's man, a jolly good fellow who loves the outdoors, but Jacob as a mama's boy who hangs out with the women in the tents. The unfortunate translation here is with the word mild. That's simply not what the Hebrew word means. The Hebrew word means complete or finished. In other words, a man who is what a man is supposed to be in the eyes of God. It's the same Hebrew word that is used of Noah in Genesis 6-9. Noah was a just man, perfect, that's our word, perfect. Meaning not sinless, but meaning mature, developed, fruitful, what God wants us to be. He was perfect in his generation, Noah Walked with God. It's the same word that's used of Job in Job 1.1. Job was blameless. That's our word. And upright. And one who feared God and shunned evil. It is what God called Abraham to be in Genesis 17.1. I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. That's our word. It is what God calls all Israel to be in Deuteronomy 18.13. You shall be blameless. That's our word before the Lord your God. So the Hebrew word used of Jacob does not mean mild or quiet or effeminate or milk toastish. It means spiritually mature, faithful, and fruitful. And we saw evidence of Even of Jacob's physical manliness, when we looked at Genesis chapter 29, we'll see that coming up. We looked at it a few sermons ago, though, looking ahead, where he moves a large stone off of a well which normally takes multiple men to move. Jacob moves it by himself. He was no weak man. And then there's the phrase, dwelling in tents. Which sounds like to us, hanging out with the women, being one of the girls. It doesn't mean that at all. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jacob's sons were all men who dwelt in tents because they were shepherds, they were herders, and they sojourned in the land so they had to move around. Hebrews 11, 9 and 10, By faith, Abraham dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, Dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise, for he waited for the city whose builder and maker is God. So dwelling in tents is not at all associated with unmanliness or weakness, but rather with a life of those who were trusting God's promises, living by faith in the promised land, even when it was under the control of unbelievers. Esau, on the other hand, is uniformly presented in Scripture not as any sort of real man from God's perspective, but as a shallow man, a carnal man, a man who cares nothing for God or the things of God. That is why he sold his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of lentil soup, not because Jacob deceived him, he did not. Not because Jacob coerced or entrapped him. He did not. But because Esau despised his birthright, even as Scripture tells us straight out. Genesis 25:34. In other words, he looked upon his birthright with contempt. He considered it worthless because it wasn't doing anything for him in the moment. So it did not even have the value of of a bowl of lentil soup. It's the same reason why we see Esau, right when this passage begins, taking two wives, at the same time no less, and both of them pagans, who are a constant grief to Isaac and Rebekah. Isaac knows all this. That's why out of all the Old Testament figures who were discussed in Hebrews chapter 11 and 12, all of them are positive examples except for two. Cain and Esau. Hebrews twelve sixteen describes Esau as one who does not love God. He's spiritually unfaithful to God. You'll see it using um, uh, the one uh, calling him a fornicator. It's speaking there spiritually because spiritual infidelity of God is often described in the Word of God in sexual terms. Uh, People who are idolaters will be called adulterers and so forth. And so Esau is described as one who does not love God, is not spiritually faithful to God, and we are expressly told not to be like him. That's who Esau was, and it appeared very early on in his life, and it is still the case at the time of our text. As Esau's father, Isaac should have been alarmed very early on at the budding carnal character of his oldest son. He should have been praying for him. He should have been doing everything he could, seeking to mold him and shape him in a godly and responsible direction. Instead, it appears that Isaac cared most about his love for wild game that Esau would hunt and cook and so he left Esau to himself as long as he hunted and cooked game for him Genesis 25:28 Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game So Isaac's spiritual blindness we see is progressive which is a principle we see in scripture If you respond To the light God gives you, he will give you more and more and more. But if you turn away from the light God gives you, he will give you less and less and less. And we need to see here that Isaac's household is not what we often think. We think of Isaac and then Rebekah, and each one of them has a pet child. And so Isaac loves Esau and and Rebekah loves Jacob, I would submit to you that's not the picture that Scripture is giving us. It was rather a household where one parent was rewarding spiritual maturity and one parent was rewarding carnality. And at the time of our text, Isaac is determined to defy the Word of God by making Esau the heir and covenant head. Isaac desperately needs God to intervene and to stand between him and the cliff, and to get him back on the right road. And that's exactly what we see God doing here as only God can. Now, does that mean that everything that Rebekah and Jacob did in deceiving Isaac was good and right and wise? No, it doesn't mean that. But remember what Romans 8.28 says. God works all things together for the good of those who are called according to His purpose. It doesn't say that He works only holy, righteous, and wise things together for good to those who are called according to His purpose. He works all things, even unrighteous things, even sinful things, even foolish things, to the good of his people, to the end that they will be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he will be the firstborn among many brethren, Romans eight twenty eight and 29. And so God works here even the misguidedness and folly and sin of Rebekah's and Jacob's actions to his own glory and to the good of those who are his called, including and especially Isaac. God takes these imperfect threads and weeds them together in a way that only he can, so that Isaac ends up unintentionally doing what he should have intended to do all along. Look at the evidence of God's hand in these events. Look first at Isaac's extreme skepticism toward Jacob, whenever Jacob comes and pretends to be Esau. Isaac keeps bringing up challenge after challenge. Verse 18, who are you? Verse 20, how is it that you have found the game so quickly? Verse 21, come near that I may feel you to see whether you are really my son Esau. Verse Verse 22, he even notes... The hands are Esau's, but the voice is Jacob's. In spite of all of this, all of the skepticism, he ends up blessing Jacob. Secondly, look at the timing of the events. I mean, they, they mesh together like the skill shuffling of a deck of cards. Everything falls perfectly. It's like a Broadway play. Everything is just one right after another. As soon as Isaac speaks to Esau and Esau leaves for the field, Rebekah flies into action for the cooking of the goats and putting together the ruse. As soon as Isaac confers the blessing on Jacob and Jacob departs, Esau immediately comes into the tent with his cook game and then the truth comes out. Look thirdly at Isaac's response when he learns the truth. Verse 33, he trembles exceedingly. Now, you might think this is from anger, but it does not appear that that is the case. We have no sign from anger either here or or going forward from Isaac. It appears to be from shock and fear because his eyes are open suddenly and he realizes what he was about to do and he realizes how God and His grace has intervened to stop him and spare him, he sees how God stood between him and the cliff. Hebrews 11 verse 20 says that by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. Well, the question is, when did Isaac bless anyone in this scenario by faith? Because it is very clear that his initial blessing of Jacob was not by faith. Because Isaac was trying to do exactly the opposite of what God had spoken. But, when Isaac realizes what has happened and he trembles exceedingly, I think that is where faith comes in. Because you see, Isaac could have reversed the blessing from Jacob to Esau on the grounds that Jacob had obtained the blessing by fraud. Verse 35, Your brother came with deceit and has taken away your blessing. You see, fraud, both in the Old Testament and still today, is legal grounds for setting aside a promise, a contract, and so forth. We see this, for example, in Deuteronomy 22, where in the Old Testament, fraud regarding virginity, was grounds for setting aside a marriage. So he could have reversed this under the law of God. Of course, the law has not been given at this point, but it's been a principle. The memory of man runs not to the contrary. It has been a principle as far back as we can go. Here's the point. Isaac did not set the blessing aside now eyes open, full understanding of what has occurred, he maintains the blessing to Jacob in accordance with God's Word. Now that was by faith. Isaac says to Esau, I have blessed him, I have blessed Jacob, and indeed he shall be blessed. Verse 33. Even when Esau begs his father to also bless him. Well, you bless Jacob, okay, but bless me too. Isaac says in so many words, I have given him everything I have. I have made him your master and all his brethren I have given to him as servants with grain and wine. I have sustained him. What shall I do now for you, my son? He's not saying that I, I don't like you. I don't want to give you anything. He's basically saying I have given him my full blessing and I'm not going to reverse it, and there's nothing else. But Esau nevertheless keeps begging his father to bless him as well, and it seems that in order to placate Esau, Jacob finally says, By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. And it shall come to pass, when you become restless, that you shall break his yoke from your neck. Verse 40. Now this would seem to be that he's providing, he's he is, he, he is blessed uh, Jacob with the lordship, and Esau's going to serve him, but now he's got a condition and a way out of that. The thing is, this is a riddle, because as we go forward in the Old Testament, and we look at the history of the descendants of both Jacob and Esau, an ironic thing, a pattern appears. Whenever the descendants of Esau are serving the descendants of Jacob, or at least are at peace with them, everything goes well for the descendants of Esau. But whenever the descendants of Esau turn against the descendants of Jacob, as they did at the time of the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem, uh, the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, helped the Babylonians. Whenever the descendants of Esau do something like that, or even when they they are able to gain independence uh, from the descendants of Jacob, things go very badly for the descendants of Esau. Well, what shall be our application from this very interesting true story? I think the application is just this. We are all Shasta. Shasta. At some point in our life, if not multiple points. For every single one of us, as sinners saved by grace, there is some time when we are walking on a very treacherous path and the cliff is falling away right at our feet, but we're just blind and happy. We're just going along, we're starting to head down the wrong path, and we need God out of His sheer love and grace to stand between us and the rightful consequences of our own frame of mind, our own frame of heart, and our own actions. And we need to see the great grace and faithfulness of God here and the love of God that is present in this passage. We've seen it previously with Abraham. For example, when fear got the better of Abraham, and so he represented Sarah as his sister and concealed the fact that she was his wife, and then Sarah was taken by Pharaoh or some other local ruler. In those situations, you see, it's Abraham who is walking blind. He can't see the perils at his feet. He can't see the peril is not Pharaoh. The peril is you not trusting and obeying God. That's the peril that's going to take you off the cliff. And look at what's happening to your wife as a result of the fact that you're walking on the mountain pass and you're blind. You can't see it. We see God in those instances. God was gracious. He was loving. He was faithful. He intervened to protect both Abraham and Sarah. We saw it with Sarah when she despaired of her barrenness after decades And then when menopause was approaching and in panic, she hatched the ancient version of surrogate motherhood involving her maid, Hagar. And of course, that all completely backfired. It not only didn't work, it just backfired. But here's the thing, even though Sarah probably felt forsaken of God at that time, God did not forsake her. He never let go of Sarah He miraculously caused her to conceive, even past menopause, after a lifetime of barrenness, that she was the one through whom the promised picture of the promised one, Jesus Christ, would come. It's through Sarah. It's not through Hagar. So God was very gracious. And in the end, Sarah was filled with laughter. She said, I have laughed and everyone who hears will laugh with me. And we see here with Isaac God's superabounding grace. That's the language Paul uses in Romans. He says that where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. Where sin abounded, grace superabounded. And that's what we see here with Isaac. He's done He's done a, We've seen him do faithful things, but here he's doing a lot of things wrong. There's a lot of patterns that have been sown for quite some time now, and all the fruit is coming out now. And there's no way that Isaac actually deserved God's interventions here. He's not showing any redeeming virtues in this particular passage. God steps in because that's who God is. He is the God of love and grace. Rebecca's efforts to intervene although I do think it was motivated to save her husband from the judgment of God and then the ripple effect upon all of them. I don't think it was simply because Jacob was her pet. But apart from God's sovereign and gracious intervention, Rebekah's plan here to fool Jacob would have clearly failed. And not only failed, but backfired. And therefore, probably it would have made everything worse. It's only the hand of God here that makes this plan <laughs> work. But God takes something that is imperfect, in foolish ill-conceived, is not going to work, it's going to make everything worse, God takes it and he weaves all of that folly and everything else together to cause Jacob to do unintentionally what he should have intentionally sought to do all along. So as Christians, we need to realize, let's don't look down on Isaac because we're all Isaac at some point. We're all Shasta at some point. So we need to be ever thankful to God for His great love and grace and sovereignty, which He works to our good, even when we don't deserve it, and especially when we don't deserve it. We also need to pray in times of wisdom and strength, For the times we will be foolish and weak. Let me say that again. We need to pray in times of wisdom and strength for the times we will be foolish and weak. Because we all have those times. Those times when we are shasta and blind and oblivious. We need to recognize and say, Lord, I know I have times when I'm not, I'm not seeing what's really going on. I'm not in my right mind. I'm not seeing things the way they are. My heart is not intent on Your purposes. And I'm walking on a mountain pass and I don't know it. Don't let me go over. Don't give me what I deserve. Intervene. Intervene and work Your grace and Your purposes. And thirdly, we need to watch out for One another. We need to watch out for brothers and sisters who are on a treacherous mountain pass with the cliff falling away at their feet and they don't seem to recognize it. They're not really in their mind. We need to watch out for one another. We need to give a word of prayer. We need to give a word of counsel. We need to be God's means to go and grab one another. And we need to uphold one another in those times. And so I submit all these words to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.